For this podcast episode, we'll be taking a deep dive into trauma. While we're hoping this conversation will be healing, we'll be touching on some very sensitive subjects that might be triggering. Please be mindful of who might be listening along with you. Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast. I'm Dr. Neha Batuk, WebMD's Chief Physician Editor for Health and Lifestyle Medicine. Today, we're exploring the word trauma. The word itself brings up so many mixed reactions and feelings. For some of us, discussing trauma can be triggering, bringing up feelings of shame, guilt, or vulnerability. For others, trauma can bring up fear, anger, or feelings of depression. And for others still, trauma might bring up panic. It might remind us of experiences we've been trying so hard to block out or run away from. None of us have lived without some sort of storm in our lives. So how do we take these traumatic feelings and build resilience for ourselves and for future generations? In this episode, we'll explore definitions and experiences of trauma, specifically intergenerational trauma, and we'll talk about coping mechanisms to help us shift from surviving to thriving. As we open this episode, I want to remind everyone that there's no one-size-fits-all experience with trauma, and discussions of trauma can bring up a lot of feelings that we're uncomfortable with. So we're hoping this discussion can be a conversation that allows us to feel compassion for ourselves and for those around us. Here to discuss this topic with us is my guest, Dr. Tima Bryant. Dr. Tima is the 2023 president of the American Psychological Association and is currently a tenured professor of psychology in the Graduate School of Education and Psychology at Pepperdine University, where she directs the Culture and Trauma Research Laboratory. Her clinical and research interests center on interpersonal trauma and the societal trauma of oppression. Dr. Tema is the host of the Homecoming podcast and author of several books, including Homecoming, Overcome Fear and Trauma to Reclaim Your Whole Authentic Self. Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered podcast, Dr. Tema. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for the conversation. So am I. I have been listening to a lot of your work, and I am really, really thankful for you being here with us today. So before we begin exploring our topic, I'd like to ask about your health discovery. What was your aha moment around trauma and the actions you took because of that discovery? The aha moment for me was discovering that busy is not the same thing as being healed, that you can be productive and still be in a very wounded place. And so stereotypically, we often think about people who are traumatized as stuck and stagnant. And when I experienced sexual assault, it was during my college years, and I was a student at Duke University. After having a semester where my grades really crumbled, I really invested myself in my productivity and what we would call in my community a spirit of excellence. And what I discovered is when you do a lot and do it well, you and others can mistake you for whole or healed. 
And so I had to discover for myself that sometimes we're doing a lot out of a sense of unworthiness and we have to heal so that we recognize just being who you are is enough instead of being driven to perform in order to compensate for your wounds. Oh my gosh, so powerful. I thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your experience. And, you know, what that brings up for me is how we sometimes mistake being super productive as meaning that we are together in some way. And we're not thinking about all that it's taking us to keep us together and how much extra stress we're putting on ourselves just to keep this external idea, this external picture to the outside world that we're somehow whole. And that doesn't necessarily match up with what we're feeling inside. So true. We can become very centered on people pleasing and making sure either professors or parents or peers or dating partners are approving of us when we have actually disconnected from ourselves, are distracted from our own needs. And so to heal is to come home to yourself and to be able to live from a place of truth. It's so interesting because I'm a primary care doc. And I know that a lot of times when we're talking to our patients about their behavioral health or mental health concerns, we're really asking about the impact on their day-to-day activity. So that's when it sort of sends an alarm bell off for me in the office is when someone is saying they can't keep up with their day-to-day activities. They can't get themselves out of bed. But what you're describing is someone who's super high-functioning And yet the effort, the work of doing those day-to-day activities is so draining. Yes. We may be so depleted that it can show up in our physical health, even though we're being productive. So you may have hair loss, grinding your teeth, nausea, backache, migraines, skin breaking out because of the stress, but you're still performing. And the other piece that we can ask about and be tuned into is when people have difficulty relaxing. There can be an overdrive, but can't sit in silence or have difficulty sleeping. So there is a lack of care for the self. That is really opening my mind to questions that I should be asking. And it's really helping me sort of think about what did I miss in this conversation with a friend, a loved one, a patient in front of me where I'm sort of taking their ability to put on a smile and perform as some sort of like indication that, okay, I don't even need to dig deeper here. I can just move on to the next question. Yes, there was a message going around social media, check on your strong friends. And I think that's so important because we can dismiss and overlook certain people because we just say, oh, they're strong. They don't need anything. So the attention goes to those who are more visible and audible in their cries for help. And so tuning in to not only for adults, but also children, the parentified child, the super responsible child who often flies under the radar, but may be suffering. So let's take a step back and just sort of think about how do you define trauma? What is it that's underlying what we're seeing in the person in front of us? So there is traumatic stress and then daily stress. We all have different stressors, usually related to our different roles and responsibilities, and we figure out a rhythm 
a way of being able to juggle the different things you have to do. And then traumatic stress is when those events occur that overwhelm our usual capacity to cope. They disrupt our nervous system. They can create a sense of hopelessness or helplessness or powerlessness. When people have ongoing trauma, it can disrupt their sense of who they are or their ability to regulate their emotions. And so unfortunately, when the term post-traumatic stress disorder was first developed, the word rare was in the definition. And with time and studying humanity, we figured out we had to remove the word rare because unfortunately so many people have experienced community violence, family violence, school shootings, the suicide or homicide of a loved one. And so the event does not have to be rare, but it is overwhelming. That brings us to the whole concept of this intergenerational trauma, how we hold on to it, that experience through generations, and then also intercommunity trauma. So it's not necessarily even that you may have been the one to experience it, but you're just as likely as your neighbor potentially or having that feeling can also bring these feelings of trauma. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Absolutely. And so some of the stress and symptoms and strain that we carry did not originate with us, that it can start with the people who raised you and the people who raised them. So trauma can be passed down through the generations. It can be passed down in terms of our neurobiology. Trauma shifts the brain. And then there have been some interesting studies done, for example, with descendants of the Holocaust where they're able to see those changes in the next generation and in the generation after that. Not only do we have those physiological changes, but we also have what we observe. So as children, you pay attention to how your caregivers navigate life. And if they're in a perpetual state of vigilance or distrust. And so we learn from them from observation. And then we also learn from the direct messaging. So for example, many communities of color will tell their children, never let people outside of the house see you weep. You always have to be twice as good. You always have to prove yourself. You are representing your entire community. And while the gift of community is wonderful, there can also be a weight that people feel that each action they take will be a judgment on their entire community. And so it can pass down in that way. There is the collective trauma of when you are a part of a targeted group. So you may see during the era of Stop Asian Hate or Black Lives Matter, that even if you were not directly targeted, knowing that members of your community were targeted just because they are of your same identity can create a lot of anxiety and grief. So much of what you're saying resonates. I think for me, it's also bringing up this idea of intercontinental since we're in the U.S. and most of us have either come ourselves or our ancestors have come from other continents. So they're carrying with them their experiences, their ways of relating their cultural practices in how they cope in the day-to-day world. And then like you said, sort of being that model, that representative of that community. 
I definitely recognize in myself growing up that way and thinking, okay, I have to behave. So I represent what, you know, an Indian person can do or can be or how one can fit in as an Indian person. That's right. It's a lot of weight and strain. And it also plays into the stereotypes, right, that you have to prove your worthiness or that you are deserving of the space that you are taken. So we have the migration stress. We have those who are coming from war or refugees. We have the disconnection and distrust. And then we can also think about persons who are descendants of Trail of Tears, descendants of internment camps descendants of the transatlantic slave trade, the violations don't end in that era. And it's important for people to know because some people say, oh, that was a long time ago. The reality is that the discrimination, stereotype and stigma continues. So it's not like you can point to some historical date and say, after that date, everything was fine. So how come you're not fine? The hostility and the fears continue. I think a lot of us put this pressure on ourselves to want to break the cycle for our children. And regardless of what it was that we're carrying, whether it's just parenting practices that run in families that may not be ideal, that may be maladaptive in some ways, to your point about modeling healthy behaviors, but you can't be what you can't see. So if you haven't seen that done in your home, it may be harder to sort of model that for your children. So how do we shift from, okay, here is a problem that we all need to be aware of, recognizing it, naming it, and then translating that into something that can strengthen us as people or strengthen our children? So it is important to honor the ways the people before us survived while still being able to recognize they survived doing it that way, but there was a cost. There was a cost to the women in our family who had to erase and silence themselves and put everybody else first. And so we can appreciate their sacrifice and at the same time decide what of the things I saw do I want to hold on to and replicate? What are the things I want to modify? And what are the things I want to throw away that I want to discard? that I'm not going to do that with my children, even though I understand why it was done with me. Tricia Hersey has a book called Rest as Resistance. And for us to consider resting for marginalized communities as radical revolutionary acts. Sometimes people are dismissive of self-care, but when you historically have been a part of a group where your labor equals your worth, then it is a gigantic step to say, I am worthy sitting still. I am worthy even when I take a nap. I am worthy without doing 7 million things. And so being willing to rest, also being willing to have safe spaces where we can tell the truth. Many times in my community, those who are of Christian faith, there's this script where when people say, how are you? You say blessed, right? I'm blessed, I'm blessed. And sometimes these spiritual or religious scripts don't leave a lot of room for our humanity. And so for us to say two things can be true at the same time. Yes, I have blessings and I'm grateful and I'm also tired. I'm blessed and I'm grateful and I'm also disappointed. And so when we can model for our children being able 
to be our full selves, it gives them permission to know that they can lean into the truth of their full selves as well. I'm so glad that you mentioned that having the two thoughts at once. I'll give this as an example because this just happened. We've been having a lot of storms in our city, in our town, in our neighborhood. And so we had this downed tree right on our block. I really started talking to my kids about how this is very similar to like some of the trauma that can happen in our lives. I don't think I used the word trauma, but I said some of the problems we might experience. There was a storm. It happens. This tree is down and the normal flow of our day. So the easiest way for us to get from our home to where we need to go is now blocked. And every time I would forget in the morning and I would drive us straight to that tree and I would freak out. And after a while, I was like, my God, I am really not doing a good job modeling. This happens. We know that it's here. So we've got to take an alternate route. Both things are true, that it would be nice if that tree wasn't there, but it is. So we're going to have to do something different. That's a great example. It reminds me of relationship dynamics because we have incredible research showing how attachment styles from early childhood can then show up in our attachment styles in romantic relationships, even our attachment styles at work. And so instead of the take-home message being, I can never connect with other people, it may be I have a longer route to get there. Like for me to open up or for me to trust people, I have to learn What is the pathway that will get me there? Whereas people who were able to kind of freely trust may drive straight to it, right? And so being patient and compassionate with ourselves and with each other when it's a longer road to get there. Let's just say like you have not been the best role model. You know, what does it mean to undo that? And how do you sort of lay down that guilt or that feeling that, oh, oh my gosh, I've already done so much damage. How can we talk about fixing that? So one is acknowledgement. And a lot of parents are never willing to apologize to be able to say, like, I got it wrong, that, you know, what the kid did may have been something small. And we were so overwhelmed with work or life or whatever. And we start screaming in this way that does not match the event. Instead of pretending that didn't happen or just giving them extra dessert, To actually say that, you know, I want to tell you I apologize. Yes, you should have straightened up your room or you shouldn't have forgot your book. But my response didn't match what you just did. And I'm sorry about that. So acknowledgement and apology is one. And then the other beautiful thing is letting our children see us grow and change because it's a reminder for them to know it's possible as opposed to when we use that line. That's just me. That's just me. People have to adjust. That's just me. And that was me, and I can choose to be a new me. I can choose to grow. And then when our children or other family members make mistakes, they'll have a living model of like, yes, I messed this up, but I don't have to continue in this pattern. That was a symptom or a sign of perhaps my wounds or my stress, but that's not my identity. So I get to make a new choice. That's really very powerful and helpful. And then to kind of telescope back out to how we started this discussion is when 
And at what age is it appropriate to start showing them some of the deeper wounds and traumas that may be embedded in us and potentially in them from our history? And how do you have that conversation about a lot of what I do or maybe the way that I am behaving may stem from or you may experience this in your life because of systemic problems? How do you introduce that topic and at what age? So in an age-appropriate way, it's helpful to talk about it throughout childhood. It's just the level of detail or the graphic nature of it may change. But sometimes we think we're protecting children by never letting them know these things exist. And what that often looks like is the child is not prepared for when these encounters happen. So, for example, with discrimination, to be able to say some children were taught not to play with other kids and they just were told to make that decision based on what the kid looked like. And we know that is really not a kind thing to do. We know that's a harmful thing to do. But them having that awareness will help them not to internalize it so much if they go to the playground. And just when they show up, the kids like run off and don't include them. When we don't help them to understand that that exists, then they think there's something about them, that something's wrong with them. And then, you know, around sexual abuse, again, not graphic details, but to go into like good touch or bad touch or, you know, ownership of your body or those are important conversations to have. I would just say for parents, you want to be careful about what is my intention in sharing in this moment? Because some people are using their children as their therapist or their best friend. And they may need to go talk to another adult instead of putting that on their child. Or some people are trying to have their children stuck in fear. So when I'm looking to inform them, I don't want the take-home message to be, people are terrible, so just be afraid. But I want them to know there are people who make bad decisions. And those bad decisions can sometimes hurt other people. So we want to be mindful of paying attention to our alarm, seeing how you feel in somebody's presence or if someone makes you uncomfortable. So the point is to be empowering and also for them to know you're a safe person they can talk to if something like that happens. That's really helpful. You talk a lot about creativity and using creative energy to move past some of those feelings of trauma. So how can we incorporate that into our lives? I love the art so much. It is a wonderful vehicle to talk about the things we're not supposed to talk about because you can make it as obvious as you want or you can kind of code it where only you understand what it is, but when you look at it, you know what it is. So we can use poetry. If people are comfortable, they can just kind of free write. If people feel like I'm not creative or I don't know where to start online, there are many templates. So it'll be like a poetry template where there are certain lines or words missing, and then you can fill in your own. And if you've had some terrible experience, you could come right out in the poem and say it, or it could be a poem about a rock. And you know what that rock is. Poetry is one. Music is another. Music shifts our mood or can enhance our mood. So sometimes if you're feeling down, it helps to listen to a song where you feel like that singer or that songwriter gets you, gets what you feel. And sometimes we want to pick a song that will shift our mood. I often say when people have a stressful job, 
You want to have an anthem, like what is the song I'm going to listen to on my way to work that's going to inspire me or motivate me or fuel me. And then dance or movement is so important because we hold stress in our bodies. And so whether that is trauma-informed yoga or somatic therapy or stretching or walking, a way of releasing the stress that we hold can be in our movement and dancing. I love that. I'm also kind of thinking and reflecting on what you said earlier about some of the practices in our communities and our religious traditions that can be resilience building where, you know, there are certain pieces that maybe we don't want to continue. We want to break the cycle of those, but we don't want to break the links to some of these practices. So one of them is community. When people have a faith community, usually those are a group of people that you can be with weekly or on some other regular basis where in the good ones and the nourishing ones, there's a sense of belonging and acceptance. And that is a wonderful protective factor. There's also the music, which is a part of it. Prayer and meditation can be a great way of clearing our minds, of focusing, of coming into a place of truth-telling. And it can also be for a lot of people a source of hope. So we know whether it is an individual trauma or a collective trauma, that hope helps us to believe in the possibility of our own healing and recovery. So, so powerful. I'd love to close the episode with a couple more just bite-sized action items that our listeners can start taking part in or trying out today. So do you have one or two things that you'd like to highlight? Yes. So one is contemplative time. So time away from your devices, not radio, not television, not even a podcast, not social media. To come home to yourself requires some silence. And so to either sit in silence for a few minutes a day, to take a walk in silence, to meditate. Another good one is journaling. You get a lot of voices coming at you from all different directions, and you want to be able to distinguish your voice, your inner voice. And so I would invite each person to think about when can you have some quiet time? It may even be when you're driving, but turn the music off and just be at home within yourself. And the second thing that I would encourage is some truth telling. So pick a family member or a friend or a mental health professional that you're going to tell a deeper truth to. So not where I'm going to perform, not where I'm going to emotionally mask, but when I talk to this person, I'm going to tell them something real. Thank you so, so much for being with us today. Oh, you are welcome. Thank you for having me. We've talked with Dr. Tima Bryant about trauma, intergenerational trauma, and then how to move from just surviving to thriving. To find out more information about Dr. Tima Bryant, visit drtima.com. My main takeaway, basically none of us will go through life without exposure to some sort of experience that our bodies and minds identify as traumatic. How well we're able to cope depends on a host of factors. I think two major ones are one, underlying vulnerability. Are we part of a group that experiences traumatic events on a regular basis? Do we have intergenerational traumas that we're dealing with? And number two, 
access to healthy adaptive strategies? Do we have family, social connection, other parts of our lives that bring us joy? The other thing I'm going to take away is the best ways to identify healthy coping strategies, to identify if we do have a problem, where are we feeling it? Are we feeling it in our bodies as upset stomach, headaches, fatigue, or are we feeling it as panic and anxiety? Once we've identified that, what are our strategies to go around these problems? And can we find ways to slowly remove this obstacle from our path? Thank you so much for listening. Please take a moment to follow, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite listening platform. If you'd like to send me an email about topics you're interested in or questions for future guests, please send me a note at webmdpodcast at webmd.net. This is Dr. Neha Patak for the WebMD Health Discover Podcast.